you are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. This is episode 9, and today's topic is bad science. Today's guest is senior researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology and one of the founders of the Bullied into Bad Science campaign, Corina Logan. Corina Logan, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Eric. It's really good to be here. So um, we all know that you are behind the movement or the campaign uh, Bullied into Bad Science. But I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you mean by bad science? Yeah, it's something that um, has been coming up a lot these days. We've been hearing a lot about bad science. Um, One of the things that's really key for those of us that are part of this campaign is that We often feel pressured as early career researchers into publishing in particular journals um, where people want to see these on our CVs, apparently, to give us a job or a grant. At least that's what we hear that people want. And um, these particular journals are journals that select papers to publish. They're um, pretty selective. So they only select maybe like 10% of their submissions to actually be published. But how do they make the decision about which 10%? And so what they choose are really sexy stories. So I'm talking about journals like Nature and Science here. Um, What does a researcher have to do to make a sexy story? Well, it turns out they usually have to do a lot of practices that aren't considered very good practice in science. For example, um, we place a lot of value on significant p-values, which means that you did a statistical analysis, you found a result, and it said, oh, this one one actually means something. There's a difference here. And um, you can do a ton of statistics on one data set and go on a fishing expedition to try and find your significant Um, p-value. But to do that, it's not very good practice. You should only run a couple of statistical analyses on your data set. So that practice is called p-hacking, and that happens a lot to try and get the sexy story out of your data set. Another practice that people engage in to make a sexy story is that, you know, when you start the process, the whole process of science is you start with a hypothesis, you make predictions, you test these predictions, and then you see, was your hypothesis, you know, supported or not? But And then, so that's science forward, what I call science forward. Um, But what happens to get these sexy stories is like, as you're going on this p-value fishing expedition, you might find a significant p-value that isn't related to one of the variables you were really interested in that was part of your original hypothesis. So you say, oh, I found this this really significant p-value, but it's about this other thing. Well, I'm just going to say that I was studying this other thing in the first place. So it's this is called harking, hypothesizing after the results are known. So you then reframe your whole paper saying that this was your original hypothesis when actually what you would need to do if you were doing good science is you'd say, oh, well, look, um, this was my original hypothesis. It was or it wasn't supported. We additionally found that this other variable seems to be playing a role. Um, This kind of a a mention goes in the discussion. And you can do some analysis on it, but you say, you know, I did this analysis after the study was conducted, after my hypotheses were already laid out, um, and I developed some additional hypotheses from this um, significant p-value here, um, but we'll need to test that in the future to see if that was actually supported or not. 
So, uh, but is it only the um, the publishers or the journals who who are kind of behind the system who forces uh, students to do uh, p hacking or or harking, or is it also at the universities? You know, I really think that this is all researcher driven. Um, because it's the researchers who are on the selection committees who are selecting the next faculty members. They're hiring the next faculty members. They're selecting the next grantees. You know, this all happens when we apply for, as early career researchers, well, anyone in academia, we apply for jobs and grants, and that's how we are able to do our research um, in academia. And so it's whoever's on these committees that are, are selecting these next uh, this next generation of, um, of researchers in academia that are able to select, well, what am I selecting for? So they're, it depends on what their values are, these particular individuals. And that can vary from selection committee to selection committee. But to be honest, as an early career researcher, I haven't been on these selection committees. So I don't actually know what goes on behind closed doors. And this is an interesting question that I've had um, questions about for a long time. I have been looking for data that empirically shows that these selection committees do select for CVs that have particular journals on them, like these journals in these high impact factor, high impact factor journals that select for these sexy stories. Or is it just rumor? Like I hear from senior researchers that I should have these particular journals on my CV and then other early career researchers hear this and then early career researchers tell this to other early career researchers. So how much of this is just like fear mongering and myth and how much of it is actually true? And I don't have evidence to say one way or another. So, um, so what can students do? So this is what bullied into bad science. The campaign is, is about like, what can we, we kind of got together um, a bunch of us at the University of Cambridge saying, like, what what can we do? So we wanted to do things to try and change, like, at a structural level, you know, with the Bullied into Bad Science petition. Um, the petition is aimed at people that are on these committees, you know, individuals and institutions. Institutions can um, change their infrastructure to make things better. So for one thing, we ask people to sign DORA, the Declaration on Research Assessment, um, which says that if you're selecting individuals to be chosen for a particular position or a particular grant, you will be considering their actual individual researcher quality and you won't be using metrics to assess this quality. So you won't be using the H index or the number of publications they have or where they publish, but you'll just read their research and see whether you think it's good or not. But, but do you think that um, that will um, get rid of issues like uh, p-hacking and, and harking? Because it seems like the institutions might look for, for the same sexy stories there. Yeah. So we, this is why we're trying to target um, kind of from a top-down perspective as well. So we've submitted written evidence to a panel on research integrity um, to the UK Parliament to say, you know, these are the good practices that you can do, like value uh, preprints, value open data, um, make early career researchers voting members of their institutions and assess, you know, sign DORA, so assess based on research quality, not metrics. Because when you're doing quality research, what I've been noticing through a variety of really bad experiences I've had as a researcher on in various roles, particularly as a reviewer of other people's research, um, is that when the 
process is closed when I'm participating in research, a research practice that's closed. So usually peer review happens behind closed doors. Um, There is a whole world of politics that happens behind this closed door and research is getting out there that isn't good because there's individual variation in editors and how high quality they are and what high quality research they accept. There's individual variation in reviewers and in authors. And so we're allowing a lot of kind of questionable research to be published because these open, these practices are not open. So what I started doing, for example, to address this in in my own career is I only participate in peer review if the whole peer review process is going to be published alongside the article. So anyone can see it. And I sign my reviews. And so the authors can understand more about my background and where I'm coming from and how to interpret my comments, which I try to make it my comments useful and um, use citations and things anyway. But what that does is that means that everyone can see the editor's response to the authors as well and the back and forth, like what went into this particular paper to get it to this, you know, to pass peer review. And if that doesn't happen, um, if the peer review histories are not published alongside the articles, there are some really sneaky things that happen that I am not okay with. And that contributes to this whole problem of doing bad science. So the more we make the process transparent, and so, um, for instance, I only publish papers that um, have the the peer review histories alongside them. So anyone can look at the whole peer review history and say, well, do I think that this paper should have passed peer review? Was Was the peer review rigorous enough? And that is something that anyone can judge for themselves. So this is where open science just makes the process so that anyone can evaluate and judge for themselves. And I think that's the really important part. But, but do you understand the researchers who are not comfortable with being that open and that transparent? I know there's a lot of fear around it. And I know that for myself, how I figure out whether something's okay for me or not is I try it and I see what happens. Um, and one thing that um, I've noticed, and this is anecdotal, um, is that the reviews, when I do this open review process for my papers, the reviewers are much more useful in their feedback. They're not just giving this sometimes one sentence, oh, well, this is crap. You know, what am I supposed to do about that? I can't do, I can't, how am I revising my paper based on that? So that's a really bad quality peer review. So I think that this makes peer review peer review uh, of a higher quality. And there is actually evidence to support that from one study. Um, So I think as I talk with researchers who do come to me and say, well, I'm not really sure about this. um, And I encourage them to to try it and see. um, I've noticed that they do tend to like it, but it is a matter of kind of jumping off this cliff and, and giving it a go. I think that you know, I, I'm not really sure what the fear exactly is about or if people can specifically name like why they're scared, but it's just that we haven't done it this way, you know, so doing it this way is just new. And so maybe it's just the fear of novelty. I'm guessing that you've also made some sacrifices uh, when you are um, promoting this kind of uh, uh, campaign. So I changed my publishing ethics before the campaign started and I applied for some grants in that time period. And um, it was kind of funny. I got a, a review back from uh, a 
granting agency, got, I got the reviews back and I saw that two out of the five reviewers um, considered it a negative thing that I was publishing in open access journals, even though that particular funder required all of its fundees to publish open access completely. So apparently there was a disconnect between the reviewer education for that particular grant and what actually happened. Um, I also got my dream job at the Max Planck Institute. So after adopting these publishing ethics, so a lot of really good things have happened to me as well. Um, I know that people are afraid, like not just early career researchers, everyone's afraid. And I'm not totally sure that the fear is real because, because my science has gotten so much better since I started engaging in these open practices and just saying, well, I'm going to do this regardless of whatever happens in the future. Um, it's so easy to change my behavior as a researcher and do these things. Like it's just so easy and it makes it easier to, and faster to do my science. So I just can't justify to myself doing it any other way. And I know that um, part of the fear could be from, so I've had other careers before I became an academic. So maybe my experience in these other careers, seeing that, well, academia is not the only career I could have, makes me more willing to just say, you know, if I can't do it my way, I'm not going to do this. Um, and so I'm doing it my way and it's actually working really well. And so John Tennant yesterday at the Moonin conference gave a talk and he was saying, you know, we give this message that if you want to get a job, it's in, um, you're, you're incentivized to do one thing. And if you want to do good science, you're incentivized to do the other, like the complete opposite thing. But really he sees it as you sh the both are tied together, getting a job and um, doing good science has to be going together. And I, I agree. And I, I think that universities are more and more seeing people who have these kinds of knowledge and skills about how to do open research as beneficial because they see that this is the future. And if they want to go there, wouldn't they rather go there with someone who knows more about it than, some, than a bunch of people who don't? Um, so uh, you've talked about uh, how uh, peer reviewers could could uh, help uh, make the whole process transparent and how the institutions can, but what about the publishers? Uh, they play a large part in this as well. So <laughs> I have a few different answers for this question. Um, the publishers, some publishers are working really hard to change academic culture, and it's amazing. Um, publishers like uh, Peer J and eLife, and, um, you know, they're doing some really good work out there to try and change, like, well, how do we do this differently um, and innovate and, and make new ways of, of um, making it easier for researchers? And then there are publishers. So there are publishers that I won't submit my papers to, um, regardless of whether it's a scientific society journal that's at a publisher. Um, that's what I consider unethical, like Elsevier, Taylor and Francis, Wiley, A Springer Nature. Um, what I think that we as researchers need to start doing is make a more of a difference with where we choose to put our research. That's where the, the whole process starts with us choosing which journal to put our research in. And we need to stop, not just look at the journal, but also the publisher and put it our research, which is actually funded by the public, so it's actually public knowledge that should be available to the public, we need to put our research in journals that are 100% open access and are, are hosted by publishers that are 
ethical that are keeping money inside academia and not draining it to shareholder pockets because these big publishers are publicly traded on the stock market and a lot of people are making a lot of money off of us. So I think it really comes back to the researcher and, you know, the publishers don't need to be involved. It's just about which publishers we choose to publish at. So we need to get really uh, become really aware of what our the consequences of our choices are and make good choices around where we're putting the public funds. What's next for the whole campaign? Um, what are your plans in the future? So the campaign is so we're a bunch of researchers and we do this kind of as as we can. Um, a few of us are setting up our own labs right now, so we're super busy. And um, so it's kind of a uh, we talk to people, we figure out what we want to do next. We do that thing and then we kind of regroup. And so it's, it's an interesting kind of organic process and none of us really know how to run a campaign. So it's been, it's been, uh, it's been interesting. Um, we just brought on Lauren Maggio who does research on ethics in academia and how, well, she's got some, re- she's done a lot of really interesting research and I'm really excited about where she wants to start to take bullied into bad science because she just joined the leading team. So I think we're going to see some new fresh ideas there and that's going to be really exciting. And also she brings the empirical evidence um, to support, you know, what we're saying and what we decide to do in the future. Right now, um, what Laurent Gatto and I, we've been the co-leads so far, um, are doing is that we're setting up our research groups right now and we are saying, all right, well, if we as a campaign are leading individuals and institutions into adopting open practices that improve research rigor, then how? what do we tell people to do? So we're designing our labs with that in mind, and we're figuring out what are the best practices for researchers on the ground. Like, how can you do this? Like, how can you implement it? So I, I'm a bit farther along than he is. I've had about a year to play with this, these kinds of, um, you know, how to set up my lab and, and, and run it openly. So I have a, an automated workflow that I, I call it an automated workflow. Like all of the, the programs and software that I use to get from hypothesis to article and how I run my team, um, using these kinds of software, uh, on my website. And so, um, we've been trying to lead by example and be case studies at this moment. I don't know where it's going in the future, but we're really open to hearing. Like we're interested in doing things that can help change infrastructure, and um, so we're totally open to ideas. And we're also about all early career researchers. So any early career researcher can join us and say, "Oh, I want to do this in the name of bullying into bad science," and we'll try and help get that going. So it's really a by and for early career researcher kind of thing. Karina Logan, uh, thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Hi, everyone. Just a quick message. This podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. And if you are interested in more information about this topic, then check out our webpage, opensciencetalk.com. Thanks for listening.